You know, every preacher um, about looks for a face in the congregation, somebody to focus on, uh, preferably someone smiling, uh, preferably not someone who's taking probably a much-deserved, much-needed church nap. Um, I thought I'd found my face. I don't, you, you all couldn't have seen it, but when that precious baby was in your arms and we were singing that amazing song, um, smiling the whole time, and I just thought, that's where I want to focus. Well, baby's sleeping now, so uh, yeah. All right, you asked for it, okay. <laughs> this is how I am praying for you, Paul says. And it keeps with a theme that he set last week. Remember last week at the beginning, I, I kind of outlined where we were going these three weeks. And Paul says really three things. This is how I'm thanking God for you. This is how I'm praying for you. And this is how I'm at work for you. That's where we'll go next week. Last week, we focused on proclamation. The gospel that was announced, heard, understand, received in faith and with joy, and which then began to transform the lives of the Colossians. The same way it transforms us as we hear and take on board and understand and grasp, delve into more deeply and meditate on and finally live out the gospel. Here's how I'm thanking God for you, Paul said. The intensive and extensive work of the gospel, the way it is bearing fruit and growing, those are Paul's words. And we're going to catch that image coming at us again today. Because that same gospel that Paul mentioned last week now is beginning to bear fruit in the lives of the Colossians, and Paul wants to pray that that will continue. We'll go there in just a second. If proclamation is central to Paul's ministry strategy, so is prayer. And so today, Paul's saying to us in verses 9 through 23, this is how I'm praying for you. And though it's often overlooked, this entire stretch of verses from 9 to 23 really is one long prayer. Paul lets us look in on his prayer life. What if I were to eavesdrop on your praying? If I were to go into the prayer closet or the bedroom or wherever it is you pray, what if I were to listen in to your praying? What would it sound like? What would be the themes that often show up in your prayers? John Stott, whom I mentioned last week, who really was the trigger for a lot of what I'm thinking about these weeks in Colossians. Uh, John Stott, who was, if he was nothing else, a praying man, lets us listen in on his daily practice. Somewhere in an interview I came across, he um, he talked about his own prayer life, how every morning for his entire life, for 50 years of ministry, he got up at 5 a.m. and immediately dropped to his knees at the side of the small bed, in the small bedroom, in the small flat in the west end of London where he lived. This was his everyday morning prayer. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Don't you just love 
this profound theologian, this towering figure of the church, begins that simply. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you as Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy and blessed and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon me. Amen. Every morning for 50 years, on his knees, praying that God would make him more like Jesus. What might we hear if we eavesdropped on your prayers? Well, if you're like me, your default mode, your instinct is to pray for yourself. I usually pray most fervently when I'm in crisis mode. How about you? I dare say the most frequently prayed prayer on the planet is, Lord, help. What do you pray for? How often are you driven out of yourself to pray for others? Pray for others you don't even know. To pray for the cause of Christ, and not only the cause of you. Lloyd John Ogilvie, who was well-known preacher and pastor in Hollywood, and then went on to become the chaplain of the U.S. Senate, once said this profound sentence. Prayer is not so much our putting our burdens on God's heart. I do that really well. Prayer is not so much our putting our burdens on God's heart, but God putting his burdens on our hearts. Take that inside you, because that really is the key that unlocks the significance of what Paul says in Colossians 1, 9-23, what Paul prays. He's really taking the burdens of God, God's cause of the gospel, and he's praying it into the hearts of the people whom he lets eavesdrop. Because as central to his preaching ministry is his praying ministry. When you think about it, it's, it's really all Paul has with most of the people he knows. And he doesn't even know the Colossians. It's all Paul has besides his letters to do the work of pastoral ministry with people from whom he's most of the time cut off, either because he's in a prison cell shackled to a Roman guard or because he's at some distance traveling, planting other churches. There's Paul, still passionately concerned about the people in the churches he's either founded or which have been founded by his teammates. And the only way he can care for people is to pray for them. 
And so he prays fervently. Notice why and for whom and how often Paul prays. It's all right there in the text today. Uh, he, he begins, for this reason I pray, which means look back at everything in verses 1 through 8, and for that reason, because, he says, because the gospel's been at work in you and because you've been at work for the gospel, for that reason, for those reasons, I pray so that that will keep on. So that you'll keep the main thing, the main thing, so that you will keep fervently focused on what is most important, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. So that you will be involved as partners with me in that enterprise of gospel spreading, I pray for you. Who's he praying for? He's praying for the Colossians, duh. But he's praying for people he doesn't even know by name, other than the guy who brought the good news to them, Epaphras or Epaphroditus. And how often? This is critical. How often does he pray? Unceasingly. We have not stopped praying for you. Back to your prayer. If I were to eavesdrop on your praying, would I be there a while? Not that I'd have to be. Not that the only authentic, genuine prayer is lengthy prayer, but certainly prayer, in the sense that Paul understands it, is something more than just the few little tossed-off arrows that we occasionally send up. Paul says, we haven't stopped praying for you. But now here's where I want to focus this morning, where I think Paul bores in most deeply, what should we ask for? Especially if, as we heard last week, we're centrally concerned with becoming more like Jesus, if that's what God is at work doing, transforming you and me, if that's what's really going on, then what should we be asking for so that that transformation continues, takes deep root in us? so that the gospel bears fruit. Listen in as Paul prays. From the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. That's a wonderful summary of what all of our praying ought to sound like. Whether you use those words or not is is immaterial. But the itinerary, the agenda for prayer, is laid out there beautifully. Paul's praying that we won't have fruitless knowledge. First of all, he says, I pray that you'll have spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's critical. It's a dominant theme in Paul's letters. If you were to go to Ephesians 1, he he says much the same thing. He prays for that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you can see the grace that is yours. Everything that God's done for you and continues to do in you. But Paul doesn't only pray for spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays 
that that wisdom and understanding will have an impact, that it will bear fruit. He says, so that you will walk worthy of the Lord. It's one of Paul's favorite phrases. And it means exactly the same thing as becoming more like Jesus. The Christ-likeness that we said last week is the purpose of God for God's people. Walk worthy of the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul's praying for. That you will be pleasing to the Lord. And to, to unfold that, here you need a little grammar lesson. To unfold that, he uses four participles. Anybody here a grammarian? Anybody, can anybody define what a participle is? Participles usually end in ing, okay? Being strengthened is a, is a participle. They're, they're, we, we call them leaning words. Uh, they, they kind of act like adjectives. They're sort of adjectival in their shape. They, they define the contours and the parameters of what it means to walk worthy. Paul says, I'm praying that you will walk worthy of the Lord. Here's what it looks like. First, bearing fruit in every good work. There's that fruit bearing again. See, the way Paul envisions the Colossians is that they're hard at work in God's harvest, in his orchard. That's how he wants us to see ourselves. As his partners in fruit-bearing ministry. I don't know you. I've just met some of you. I don't know where your daily labors take you. I don't know what the orchard looks like. I don't know what fruit looks like in your life. But I do know this, that all of us, like the Colossians for whom Paul is praying here, are called to bear fruit. If you track out fruit in the New Testament, you'll see that it, uh, it's often a a relationally impactful word. It's, it's a, it describes love. Bearing fruit is to have loving relationships. In other places, bearing fruit means to have gospel impact. It means to do evangelism, do the work of a witness. Whether it's witnessing or serving in love, compassionate service, we're called to bear fruit. Paul prays, secondly, that we will increase in the knowledge of God. Keep growing. Paul prays that what God has begun in you, through his good news, will take ever deeper root, and you'll keep growing. You'll grow in your understanding. And how does all that happen? There comes the third participle being strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience. I, re I really love this one. First of all, it makes abundantly clear how important prayer is because it all depends on another power that is not within us. Paul prays that we will be strengthened with all his power, God's power, and apart from that power, we're powerless. Powerless to bear fruit, powerless to grow. We need to be strengthened with all power. Paul says specifically so that we can endure, so that we have the strength to stick it out, come what may. 
for all endurance and patience. I've often wondered why Paul uses both those words. Uh, Tom Wright, the great New Testament scholar, the former bishop of Durham, uh, is very helpful on this verse. He says, Paul punches endurance and patience because we need endurance so that we can slug through all the circumstances of our lives, the challenges, but we also need strength for patience so that we can deal not only with difficult circumstances, but so that we can deal with difficult people. Surely you know someone who tries your patience. And hopefully he's not sitting next to you. But Paul's not glib. He's very serious that there are people in our lives that put us to the test. That rob us of our courage our joy, or try to. People who peck away with us, at us, and they pin labels on us, and they misunderstand us, and they, um, they get in the way. Paul said, pray for strength to endure and to be patient. I wish I had discovered that prayer when I was young. I would have been far readier to bear with my critics. I would have been less defensive. I would have walked away a time or two. And all I had to do was pray, Lord, help me to be strengthened for all endurance and patience. And then Paul wraps up this picture of what it means to, be, to walk worthy by saying, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. That takes us to worship. That takes us to mundane daily experiences where we pause to give thanks that takes us to a whole posture of living. Paul says, I pray so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Keep growing. Living what you've learned. Being strengthened, trusting in God's energy, and always joyfully giving thanks. And that's where Paul gets stuck, in a good way. He can't just toss off that little admonition, that prayer about giving thanks without saying, let's do it. Let's really zoom in on the very causes for our thanksgiving. And so that's what he does, verses 13 and 14 to begin with. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Is there enough there for you to give thanks? Just look at that that cascade of verbs. God rescued us. 
from all the dead-end alleys and dark dungeons of our lives. He delivered us from darkness. We sang about that at the outset of worship this morning. I know some of you know exactly what that means, what it looks like, what it feels like to have been delivered from darkness. And then to be transferred into the kingdom of His Son. And He's redeemed us. He got you out of that pit you were in. And He's forgiven us. He's gotten rid of the sins that we were doomed to keep repeating. All of that, Paul says, He's done for you. Give thanks. It doesn't get any better. Well, actually it does. He goes on. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach for Him. This little two-step dance, this, this little rhythmic back and forth, Paul loves to build into the center of his epistles often. It's, um, he starts off with the before. He doesn't rub our noses in it. He says just enough to, to prod our memories. I don't have to say a lot about this. All I have to do say is, once you were, and you could almost fill in the blank for yourself, Alienated, hostile in mind, rebellious against God. Describe anybody here. The before that Paul has in mind is is embedded in that wonderful Old Testament story that we heard read so well. The story of Israel. We're like Israel, Paul is saying. Like Israel... We were in bondage. And think about the bondage that you and I have been in. Think of all the levels of our bondage. We were under guilt and condemnation. We've sinned, and so we were under God's wrath. We need to understand what God's wrath is about. It's about His utter alienation from our sin. It's about His utter contempt for human evil Talking about God's wrath, which has become unfashionable, is not saying that God's just a, you know, a cosmic meanie. He just kind of gets ticked off from time to time. We're not talking about a, a, a petty fit of anger. We're talking about a holy God wanting nothing to do with sin. We were in bondage under guilt and condemnation. But, but not only that, not, under, not only under the bondage of sin, but, but everything that sin does to us, that, that nagging sense of regret, that deep-seated shame that dogs us so often. But even worse than that, we were in bondage to our sin nature. Every time you sin, do you know this? Every time you sin, you are destroying your ability to resist that sin. That's bondage. Bondage. 
and you were in bondage to idols. Not necessarily the, the pagan stone kind, but all those things that enslave you, that supplant God, that push God off-center, that distract you from Christ. All of that describes our before. But then, Paul says so amazingly, but now. Don't you love the but now? I love that turn. Every time I I encounter it in, in Paul's letters, the but now. The crossing over by grace to stay with the image of Israel. That movement from death to life. There is now... Therefore, you can finish the sentence, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at that wonderful hymn. I I dare say it was probably a new hymn for most of us, though the tune was familiar. Uh, Four stanzas, uh, blind, deaf, dumb, dead, kind of reminiscent of a more familiar hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace, was blind, but now I see I was at a conference at um, Wheaton College um, several years ago at the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism, and I happened to be sitting next to the biggest man I've ever seen. His name is Ricky Bolden. Uh, Ricky Bolden played defensive tackle for the Cleveland Browns a number of years ago, but then he came to Christ and became an evangelist. He, He is still, though his playing days are long past, he is a massive man. Sitting right next to him while we were praying, and uh, Ricky's one of those guys who, uh, no matter who's praying, he's praying along. Uh, not not usually with words, but with sighs too deep for words. Paul calls them, you know, great cavernous chest, and and he would he would start to groan, mmm. Mm. And, and you, you could just tell, you could tell how, how he was responding to the prayer by, by, by the kind of the, the tonal quality and the, the enthusiasm, um, the volume of his, of his grunts and his moans. And then he got up to speak. And he said, I want to talk to you this morning about my favorite area of theology. I thought, well, this should be interesting. He said, I want to introduce you to buttology. Butology. And he went into Colossians and into Ephesians and just took us through all those wonderful passages where Paul does this turn, the, the same turn he's praying about here in this morning's text. Once you were far off, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the time Ricky Bolden was done, we were all shouting, But now! And he would finish the sentences. Butology. Maybe that's too crass for some of you, but works for me. But now, he has reconciled you in his body by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. In other words, he's making you like Christ. That's the whole sweep of this movement. Before, 
alienated, at odds, vengeful, hateful. But now, by His death on the cross, through His blood, redeemed, reconciled. And now, even now, you are being made like Christ. Or to say it slightly differently, you're a case study. You, all of you, are a case study of what Christ does. I would be unembarrassed to walk out into the streets of Harrisonburg today and, say, and, and point to any one of you and say, look, this is what God does. Just hang out with this person long enough and you'll see Christ at work. And I'm guessing that you want that process of transformation to continue. That you, you want and desire deeply in your heart that it be said of you that when people see you, they see Jesus. If that's the case, there's nothing more important than a fresh, clear, true vision of the authentic Jesus. And that's why Paul builds right into the center of his prayer this amazing hymn, some scholars have called it. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I'm not going to read the whole passage. It is a relentlessly beautiful reflection and meditation on who Jesus is. Take Colossians 1, 15 through 20 this week. And if you really want to have some fun, memorize it. Becoming more like Jesus means becoming more and more mature in your relationship to Him. To worship, trust, and obey Him. The clearer our vision of Christ, the more convinced we'll be that He's worthy of our commitment. So we need to look at Him. And so Paul Let's us look longingly, lovingly, from every angle, through every facet. And as we behold Him, we become more like Him. As we look at Him, we see the God who can't be seen. You want people to know what God looks like? Then say, look at Jesus. In Him we see God's original pers- uh, purpose in everything created. He was, it was created by Him. It was created through Him. The world was created for Him. Everything got started in Him. Everything finds its purpose in Him. He holds it all together, Paul says. He is supreme, towering far above everything. In all things that He may be preeminent. From creation to consummation through the cross in six verses. Massive. And at the heart of it all is Jesus. To bring it down to a kind of summary sentence, I suppose you could say, there's no part of your ordinary, everyday reality that falls outside of the orbit of his loving oversight. C.S. Lewis said it far better. He said, there's no square inch on the planet over which he is not Lord.
including you. And that lordship has implications for every area of your life. Your discipleship, your marriage, your work, your friendships, your engagement with the culture. Your relationship with him as Lord and your relationship with his people. Here's how I a few years ago, summed up this whole prayer and gave it to my congregation, and uh, I'm hoping we'll have these for you next Sunday. Uh, maybe you want to use John Stott's prayer, so you can find it online. Just put John Stott's morning prayer in Google, and it'll come up. But if you'd prefer another prayer based on Colossians 1, maybe this simple prayer will do it for you. Let's close this way what I call a prayer for growing up as a follower of Jesus. Lord, help me to live a life worthy of you, to keep growing, to live what I have learned, to trust in your energy, and joyfully to give thanks always. Amen.